0: Splendid Table is brought to you by all the chickens at Locally Laid Egg Company. Producing high-quality, delicious eggs for over a decade, Locally Laid prioritizes good lives for their hens. Locally Laid Egg Company also partners with rural farmers to keep agriculture clucking along in Minnesota. Locally sourced, locally sold, that's Locally Laid. You can learn more about visiting the flock at the farm's Airbnb at locallylaid.com. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. You know, we romanticize food a lot. We reminisce about meals we've had, like their major milestones, and some of us make how much we like to eat, like our whole personality. But when you're just living your life, sometimes food is a huge deal, and it needs to be... And sometimes it's no big deal. And sometimes that's what it needs to be. On today's show, we have two wonderful food writers who tell us about how their outlook on food changed because of a moment or a dish that just demanded it. The Swiss-American writer Sylvie Bigar takes us into the world of cassoulet, a simple meat and bean stew that is the subject of ferocious national debate in France. And that has been her own personal decades-long obsession. And we also have the British food historian B. Wilson. B. is a gorgeous writer with an inspiring knack for finding the most interesting things about stuff you may have never thought twice about. She wrote a history of the fork, for instance. She's written a history of counterfeit food. She's written about how we learn to eat. But now she's out with a cookbook called The Secret of Cooking, Recipes for an Easier Life in the Kitchen. And yes, it's about secret tips and tricks, but also about so much more. Hi, B. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Francis. It's a joy to talk to you. The same, the same. So I'm so excited about your book. You have, you know, long been a food writer, a food historian, really. You've written many books, but never actually a cookbook. And you know, I was so excited to see how you'd approach it. And sure enough, in classic B. Wilson style it starts by quoting a recipe from the 1500s. (laughs) Not that we need to make it, but I also thought this was so interesting because you write that before there were cookbooks, as we know them, hundreds of years ago, there were were recipe books, but they were called books of secrets. So what were they?
1: Yeah, so it wasn't so much that they were recipe books, but that this is where recipes would probably find themselves. So Mm -hmm. a book of secrets... Might combine anything from a cure for baldness to here is a way to soothe tired feet um, to remedies against the plague to a really delicious <laughs> recipe for a tart or a jam or a preserve. Um, and what I really liked about this thought is that in those days, recipes were seen as remedies. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought they're still remedies. They're still mm. something. I mean, I know I love the cookbooks in my house and as much to read as to cook from, I go to them for comfort. I do go to them when, you know, the world is a sad, cold, difficult place often, you know, never more so perhaps than now. Mm. And a recipe, it gives you a sense of a happy ending. So I kind of love this thought that, that people had always thought that recipes were sort of something that you would take and feel better. Mm-hmm. Almost medicinal, but then it's a kind of emotional thing and it's an emotional thing from the beginning.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do agree that the world can be very hard and sad right now, but at the risk of sounding too glib about this, I think one thing we can say about our world is probably a little bit less hard and sad now, no matter how bad it gets, than it was in the 1500s. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Pretty rough back then.
1: (laughs) Pretty rough back then. Um, Yeah, I'm not having to worry about plague, so that's good.
0: Um, But so coming to your book, you know, which is The Secret of Cooking. So I think you've used that word intentionally. um, How do you think of your book as sort of a modern day book of secrets?
1: Well, so I knew this thing about books of secrets. And then I, I actually, this is really unusual for me. Every other book, I'm usually terrible at thinking up titles and the title will come last to me. I'll do the entire project and go through a bunch of terrible titles and then the right title appears this was the opposite. I thought of the phrase, I knew this thing about books, because I thought of the phrase, the secret of cooking. And I thought, but surely someone's used that title before. And to my amazement, I found they hadn't. And then I kind of had weeks or months of just doubting myself, thinking, well, I can't use this. I don't know what the secret of cooking is. And then suddenly I thought of the second half of the sentence, which is the secret of cooking is the person who cooks. Mm. And the more I thought about this, the more I thought, I couldn't actually think of a counterexample where that wasn't true. And it gave me what felt to me like a perfect framing device for the book that I kind of wanted to write anyway, which is cooking for all these different phases and moments of life, like cooking when you're alone and cooking when you're cooking for kids and you're having to take account of all of these different preferences and many forms of pickiness or just cooking when you're kind of busy and tired and overloaded, which covers most of us most of the time.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how did you approach actually writing it? Because like, as you say, if it's, if, it's, if it's the person cooking, and you don't, certainly don't present yourself as you know, the ultimate font of knowledge, um, how did you approach... I mean, you, you, the book draws on things you've read, things you've heard, things you've learned, and you're sharing them with us now. How did you, how did you think to capture those things? Or how did you go out and find these secrets and these pieces of advice?
1: I mean, I've been cooking all my life. I've kind of been dreaming of writing this book since I was a child sitting at the kitchen table. So in a way, this is also the only book where I've handed it in massively over word length because I forgot that recipes would take up words. Um, (laughs) So I did many too many words and I had to cut it down. Um, So in a way, it just poured out of me. But my sense of the book I wanted to write was... I kind of wrote it for myself, and I wrote it for so many of my friends, for people who, in the perfect circumstances, I love to cook. If you have a free day and somebody has else has maybe gone to the farmer's market and stocked your fridge for you, but when does that ever happen? And there's no pressure, and you're maybe cooking for people who are not picky and have no dietary requirements, what a joy it would be. I mean, I just kept coming back to the thought that, When I was a child, cooking felt like a kind of fun, sensory game where no one loses. Mm. And yet in the hurly-burly of modern life, and I find this more the older I get, um, it so often doesn't feel like a joy. It feels like yet another thing on the to-do list and something we kind of berate ourselves for and we feel like we come up short. Mm -hmm. So in terms of structuring it, I just kept thinking... What are the obstacles that hold someone back from cooking? Even someone like me who's been a food writer for years and years, but sometimes it didn't feel like such a joy. And I wanted to figure out ways that could help people get back to it being a joy and not a drag. So that was sort of my structural advice. And as you say, I device as I s you say, I kind of sought out cooking secrets from everyone I came across. Because I think this is one of the beautiful things about cooking that Many of us think, oh, I'm just stuck in a rut. But one person's rut can be somebody else's inspiring new idea.
0: Mm, Yeah, I love that idea. There's a reason why you keep going back to it over and over again. Maybe you're tired of it, but I'm not. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, So the book is structured, you know, it's chock full of recipes, as you say. But, it, you know, I love that it isn't structured in the typical way, like appetizers, mains, desserts, or whatever. Um, But rather into these chapters that are all about sort of areas of advice, um, there's one called "Finding the Missing Element," which is, you know, as in when people say like, "Oh, this dish is missing something," and so it's the, you know, that whole chapter is sort of a conversation about, well, what? How do you find what is missing? What sort of seasoning or whatever? Um, and there's another one, you know, about falling in love with your tools. And <laughs> this is great because this all sounds very sort of can sound very high level and abstract but you basically have an entire chapter devoted to how passionate you are about your box grater. Yes. <laughs> it, is very, <laughs> it is very real and it is very down to earth. It's,
1: it, it's maybe a bit niche, but um, <laughs> I really do love my box grater. I mean, actually, it's a subsection of the chapter you just mentioned, which is called something like use the tools you have and get the tools you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And my thought there was that I increasingly feel you should mistrust anyone who says you can't be a great cook if you don't have a bunch of expensive gadgets because... If you look at the great traditional cooks around the world, whether it's India, China, France, anywhere, they didn't have a load of tools. They kind of got by with some kind of great cutting device, a board, a few grinding tools, maybe a few versions of sieves or colanders and a few pots. Mm -hmm. And they made the most extraordinary food. And I'm not saying that once we have electricity in our kitchens, we should go back. I also am totally (laughs) in favour of embracing the food processor and the handheld blender and all of those things, because if you can save time and save labour, why not? And I'm devoted to all sorts of electric devices in my kitchen. But the box grater, I just suddenly thought, there are all of these neglected utensils, which are so great, and we just take them for granted. And The box grater, when you just stop and look at it with fresh eyes, it's like a miracle machine. Um, (laughs) It does the work of a 100 small knives all at once and it does it without any electricity and it is incredibly affordable to buy and if you don't even want to buy one new, you can probably pick one up in a yard sale. Sure. And I love it and it's just that sense as well that all my favourite kitchen utensils have that it's like an old friend. When you kind of pick it up out of your drawer... It just feels like, oh, yes, here you are again. And you're kind of holding on to it in the same way that you hold on to a wooden spoon. I love my box grater. So, yeah, I wrote, as you say, it's maybe overkill, but (laughs) I just suddenly thought, what are all the great things I make with it? And I make zucchini fritters. And that's a recipe I was really pleased and proud with because I also figured out, I'm sure it's not original to me, but it was new to me when I thought of it. That instead of frying them, you could make them in the oven, and they come mm. out just as crispy and delicious. But you're not kind of standing there watching as some of them burn and some of them come out undercooked. Um, yeah, or grated tomato and butter pasta sauces is another of my favorite things.
0: Yeah, talk about that. The grating tomato, I think, is maybe new to people because that is something that um, I know you know wonderful professional cooks who are absolutely devoted to grating tomatoes. Not everyone does that. So tell us about grating tomatoes. Yeah, for
1: it, I think it's becoming a thing because I noticed in the latest Ottolenghi book, they were writing about grating tomato too. So, mm-hmm. But it, in a sense, I mean, I say this in the book, it's ridiculous to say it's some new hip viral internet sensation because obviously <laughs> grandmothers have been doing this for decades. But it was new to me. I only latched onto it a couple of years ago. And a lot of people, when I mention it to them, say, but surely tomato is too soft to grate. Um, you kind of associate grating vegetables with those hard root vegetables, which goes so neatly into strands. But actually the fact that the tomato is soft is what's so beautiful about grating it, because you grate it and slowly what happens is that the um, flesh goes through and becomes this beautiful silky pulp. And meanwhile, the skin just kind of remains in your hand and you can save it for making stock or anything you like, or just compost it if you don't have time to make stock. Um And you have the makings of an instant or near instant absolutely delicious pasta sauce. If you just add a lot of garlic, which you can then grate on the fine side of the box grater, butter, I add a pinch of chili flakes, salt, basil at the end, optional, obviously you could add any herb you like. Mm -hmm. So good. And you don't even have to make the pasta sauce. I mean, you could just stop with the beautiful pulp and make it into a kind of Spanish pan con tomate, have it on toast with Mm. a bit of garlic rubbed on which is
0: so good oh i love that yeah just season that tomato pulp olive oil salt mm,
1: lots of olive oil and then oil. if you
0: take the garlic yeah you take the garlic and and rub it on the crags of the, mm. which was you know something i've known about forever i've read about that forever and it just seems so goofy you know not having done it myself the first time before i ever did it i was like you take you literally take a clove of garlic and you rub it on bread like that like what's that gonna do but actually when you do it it's magical <laughs>
1: It's amazing, isn't it? That's another of those simple things. Yeah, I remember that one thinking, hang on, how is the flavor even going to transmit itself? And it totally does. It's yeah. just, it's deep, isn't it? And I think there's something about the heat of the toast that just somehow must very mildly activate those volatile aromas in the garlic.
0: That's B. Wilson, author of The Secret of Cooking. More with her in a minute. And then it's Sylvie Bigar, author of Cassoulet Confessions, I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking today about how the secrets to cooking can be found all around you. Let's get back to it with food writer B. Wilson. What else do you love about your box creator that we may have not thought of?
1: So, actually, I have another recipe there, which is called Kim's Gyozas, which is named after a friend of mine who, among many other things, um, teaches cookery to children. And I was chatting to her one day, and she said that she'd just been teaching these young kids to make gyozas. And it kind of made me feel, gave me almost an inferiority complex, because I was thinking, I've never made gyozas, and these kids are making them, and how is it so easy? And she said, Oh, I just use a box grater. And it was her secret of how you can make the filling incredibly quickly. And sure enough, I tried it. So the recipe there, I think it's carrots, some mushrooms. So it is much more autumnal or wintry. But you can adapt that. I then um I love Hetty McKinnon's books. And in one of her books she just has a whole array of different vegetable dumplings. And I tried some of those and adapted them to my Gyoza sort of basic gyoza formula and I thought, oh yeah, this Mm. is kind of one of those infinitely adaptable things. But it's amazing, again, that I would never have thought really to grate mushrooms. I now grate mushrooms a lot. Um, I have another recipe in the book for, you know, that kind of all in one pasta that has also become a thing where instead of boiling the pasta separately and then adding it to the sauce, you just dump everything into the pan and you think this is never going to work.
0: I I believe you because I have faith in you, but I cannot believe you. (laughs) But it but really on. really does work. it really really
1: does work. so the mushroom one it's it's one of my one person recipes in the book um and I it's one of the things I came up with so another piece of context for the book which I talk about a couple of times is that I got part way into the project and then my entire relationship with cooking well indeed with life with everything but cooking is always about life changed because my husband of twenty three years left me for mm. another woman and I was just heartbroken Uh, no thank you it's you know life is better now but it was it was tough for a while but I found suddenly along with everything else I had to do even more cooking than I was doing before Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the funny thing was that I found the cooking helped I kept being so surprised by this because I'd already begun writing the book and I'd already begun writing these things saying cooking is a salve cooking can soothe us um and it was only by being thrown really hard, heartbreaking times that I was shown the truth of it. Like time and again, I would think, I'm feeling really wobbly today. I've been crying the night before. How am I going to get up? And then it was knowing I had to get up and cook for my son and my daughter, who was still at home then, and then cook for myself. And the mushroom pasta it was one of the dishes I devised for times when my kids were going off to have dinner with their dad alone for the first time which felt so strange. And then I just thought, what do I feel like? I feel like something really simple, but I wanted comfort. And I was kind of thinking of, it doesn't sound the most appetising origin for a dish, but I was thinking of the canned mushroom soup that my dad used to be devoted to, which actually when I go back to canned soup, it never gives me the same comfort. I think that's, it's funny with nostalgia foods. Sometimes Mm. you go back and it's not what you remembered. Your palate has changed. I no longer enjoy those processed soups in the same way. But I wanted that some of that same flavour palette. So I just grated some mushrooms, added some white wine, some butter, some a load of chopped parsley, because parsley is a comfort food to me because my mother used so much of it. A mm-hmm. um, bit of salt, some water, threw in some spaghetti. And then to my amazement, after can't remember maybe 10 minutes of stirring I had this beautiful creamy mushroom pasta that was just what I felt like eating you add a bit of cream at the end more parsley bit of lemon bit of parmesan and you almost feel as if someone else has done the cooking
0: yeah (laughs) I love that well first from a technical point of view now that you talk about it the way you do are you stirring the pasta in there it's almost you're cooking like a risotto Right, with the it, the it really pasta. is
1: like a risotto i think the, the key to fast. that technique yeah. is thinking this is not actually something there's nothing new in the kitchen i increasingly think or very little that's new it usually goes back to some older technique and you're right it's releasing the beautiful starch in the pasta and so it actually has additional creaminess that you don't get from pasta cook the traditional way much as i love that um Yeah. And because this way is called magic pasta, my son now always calls the other way muggle pasta, in reference (laughs) to Harry Potter. for mere
0: mere non-magical humans.
1: Exactly. And he would always prefer the muggle version. He's not totally sold on the (laughs) all-in-one.
0: But I have to say, I mean, again, I'm sorry about, you know, what happened in your life while you're writing this book. But when you come back to the idea of cooking as a remedy, you know, truly, this sounds like, A remedy you know this idea not just of the delicious food that you can make for yourself in this quicker way but also this notion that like oh you you can take control in a small way of your life again if if you are finding yourself in a place where things are feeling unmoored or or, and, and you're hungry you have to respond to your hunger right you have to respond to your physical hunger and for you to be able to quickly go and do something quickly without fuss and because you have these ideas you have these secrets that have been shared with you
1: Um, it's all those things yeah I can absolutely and it it reminded me of my own competence which was something I started to doubt in my sad state you can start to think you you can feel worthless and then somehow it's hard to feel quite so worthless when you've actually made something good to eat like the fruits of your labor are there right in front of you and then when you get to eat them you're also nourishing yourself So one of the chapters I most enjoyed writing, there's one called um, Be Your Own Guest, which is all about cooking alone. And I suddenly realised it's just such a neglected topic. And I know there have been some great books on solo cooking. But overall, if you look at cookbooks, there's just this default phrase, serves four. Mm -hmm. And suddenly when you're cooking alone, you think this is really tactless because (laughs) I don't want four portions of something like it's all very well saying Cook once, eat twice. I think that's great. Like, you don't want to be cooking necessarily every single meal, even if you mm-hmm. love to cook. But, cook once, eat four times, it's kind of you get a bit <laughs> sick of it after the third time.
0: So, but I. But that doesn't mean don't treat yourself.
1: It doesn't mean don't treat yourself. And I think um, so often, I spoke to so many people um, during the pandemic who said they were sociable cooks and they saw cooking as love. And once they weren't able to cook for their friends, they just felt they couldn't enjoy it as much. Mm-hmm. And it, I completely relate to that attitude and I see the generosity in it. But I also think, can't we save some of that love and generosity for ourselves? And what better way to do it than through food?
0: Yeah. As I always tell my daughter, you have to love yourself first. And she, yes. she, she says it back to me all the time.
1: Does she? That's beautiful. You
0: have to, you have to love yourself first.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for this, Bee. It has been such a joy talking with you.
1: Thank you, Francis.
0: Bea Wilson is the author of The Secret of Cooking, recipes for an easier life in the kitchen. And don't forget a box grater for your holiday gift list. You can find a recipe for that mushroom pasta we talked about, her magic pasta with mushrooms, garlic, and cream at splendidtable.org. The food writer, Sylvie Bigard is someone I met many years ago. I'd run into her or sit next to her at chef events, often something like marvelously French. And I just always loved talking with her. Her curiosity and knowledge of French food are so infectious. And I wasn't surprised at all when I learned that she was tapped by Daniel Ballou, arguably the greatest French chef in America, to write his magnum opus cookbook. But all the while, For over 10 years, she'd been quietly working on her own book, a slender but gorgeous and meaningful little thing about a single dish, cassoulet. It's a single dish, but with many lives and apparently the power to change lives. So hey, Sylvie, it's great to see you.
2: Hi, Francis. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled.
0: Oh, we're thrilled too. So I can't wait to talk to you about cassoulet. I'm just going to dive right into it. Let's do (laughs) On the surface, this should be an easy question, but I'm guessing that it's actually not easy to answer this question, even the simple one, but let's try. What is cassoulet? How would you define it or describe it?
2: Well, cassoulet is, in fact, a French bean and meat stew. Uh, Actually, Julia Child said uh, cassoulet is baked bean with a French accent. That's how she described (laughs) it, and I love that.
0: What goes in it?
2: So the most important part, I believe, of cassoulet is the bean and which bean. Um, That's definitely the basis for the dish. But then depending on where you have your cassoulet, it's going to have different meats. And depending who's cooking your cassoulet, it's going to taste one way or another. Some people put breadcrumbs. Some people are horrified that there could be breadcrumbs. Um, and <laughs> there are, in fact, three sort of master recipes because this being a French dish, there's got to be some kind of code, some kind of rule, just because it's fun to break the rule, right? So. Yeah.
0: Okay. So what are the three variations?
2: So they're geographical. In fact, there's the cassoulet from Toulouse, which often has lamb, duck, and pork. There's the cassoulet from mm. Castelnaudary. Um, a small, self-proclaimed world capital of cassoulet. Got that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's the cassoulet from Carcassonne that if you do it the quote-unquote right way, has partridge. Oh, so wow. Um, but it is basically a medley of meats. And what I like to put in my own cassoulet is pork, sausage, and duck confit.
1: Mm.
0: And how are they prepared? Are they braised all together? Is it
2: so? In fact, no. The meats are actually roasted, and everything that goes in the cassoulet has been cooked before.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah. And then the whole thing is baked.
2: Yes, baked.
0: There's something too about the vessel you cook it in, right? There's something special about, it or you need a. I mean, I guess at home you could just do it in a Dutch oven or whatever, but traditionally you would use a particular. So,
2: Yes. So traditionally, you would use a clay pot. Um, mm-hmm. And this being France, there's two very different kinds of school of thoughts. There's the people <laughs> who believe in the conical castle. That's the clay pot that gave its name to the cassoulet. And there's the people who believe in the rotan Castle. And I've actually worked with a potter in Minnesota called Clay oh, cool. Coyote, um, led by a young woman named Morgan Baum. And she and I have created what I see as the ideal rotonde cassoulet. Um And I believe that that's the best way to cook cassoulet because the Dutch oven sometimes can become too hot and that could dry mm. out the beans, I feel.
0: Okay, okay. I've never really cooked with clay. I know there are people who are you know, completely obsessed with it. And you have to.
2: It's very different because is it
0: because it's gentle? Like what's the Yeah,
2: it is gentle. Uh it's exactly the right word. The heat gets um sort of spread within that vessel in a much gentler and um consistent way.
0: Mm, okay. And so you layer in these different meats. Yes. And the beans.
2: Yes. And, and then how does
0: it finish and what makes it so delicious?
2: Well, you you put all of this, you know. Uh, with stock. Um, You can make your own stock if you want or not, if you don't have the time. Um, And what's really important is to have enough collagen in this medley of meat that you create a crust. And to me, Mm. um, getting the crust is sort of the uh, win of the cassoulet. And I've made cassoulet that had a crust and then I've made cassoulet that didn't have a crust. And that was a disaster.
0: <laughs> so tell us about this crust. You mentioned breadcrumbs uh, before. And I think when we hear crust, we automatically assume, oh, there's breadcrumbs on top or whatever. But you have then said uh, other people would be horrified to hear yeah. that there are breadcrumbs involved. So what is the crust, if not the breadcrumbs?
2: Well, exactly. What is the crust? I think it's a magical um, process that happens. And in fact... Huh. It's, uh, sort of a caramelization of the fat with the collagen and with the beans. And that's why most cassoulet have also pig skin because, okay. um, that sort of coats the whole thing. Um, so of course you get a scientist who will explain that this is not magic at all, but I'm not a scientist. And, uh, <laughs> and I like to think of the crust as the magical part of the cassoulet.
0: And so the idea is you bake it and as it bakes, there's there's some kind of reduction or something on top of the stew that eventually solidifies?
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. And there's also the tradition of breaking the crust. So you open the oven, you take out your cassoulet, you break the crust, you push it down, and then you put it back in the oven. And mm. you can do this twice or you can do this seven times, as many as seven times. I've seen that in recipes. And basically the goal is to get as much of this crust as possible because let's face it, it's the best part.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So I feel like I've had cassoulet in restaurants before and I know it's this, you know, important dish, this classical dish um, in some ways, as you're saying, sort of a mythical dish, Mm -hmm. but I've never had it, I think, Done the quote unquote proper way you know the, just the level of care and intention, so why is there this kind of mystique around this dish and and debate and and I think you actually you 're close with someone who started something called like the the National Academy or sorry the Universal Academy of Cas exactly. and they' like rival Castle academies. Tell us about all of that, like the culture and the mystique and the and the debate around it
2: so i I started um this whole Cassoulet journey and obsession, if you will, with a very simple uh, assignment. I was supposed to go to France. I was living in New York, but I'm originally from Switzerland and French is my first language. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was called to uh, write a story about the history of Cassoulet. This was a long time ago, 2008. And I thought it'd be a simple story. Um, I Googled Cassoulet and south of France <laughs> and landed on the page of the Universal Academy of Cassoulet. And I thought, what is this? And, um, you know, just the word universal. I mean, you know that this is not a modest group. So, um, yeah. <laughs> there was a phone number. Um, and I called the phone number and, uh, uh, I, had in, in, you know, on the other side of the Atlantic, this very gruff man saying, hello, you know, and I explained, I'm a journalist, I'm living in New York, I have this assignment, and I was speaking French to him, and he got confused, he said, French uh, journalist living in New York, and then he basically said, come for lunch on Sunday, and he hung up. And, um, I couldn't come for lunch that Sunday, obviously, it was a little far um but I did arrange to travel uh to his restaurant near Carcassonne, and uh I thought, as I'm sure you've experienced, uh I'd be you know let into the kitchen, maybe I could sit at the counter, and maybe someone would give me a few beans to taste or uh a glass of water if you're lucky. And uh, that's not at all what happened. I thought this Mm. would be a simple story and a simple trip, but it changed my life.
0: So what did happen?
2: So when I arrived, um, first of all, I wasn't taken to the kitchen. I was taken to the dining room and the table was set for 25. And Mm. in front of me were these sort of Oompa Loompas wearing red and green robes and beret <laughs> and speaking amongst themselves in a language I'd never heard before that was not German, that was not Italian, that was not Spanish. Turns out it was Occitan, and it uh, was almost yeah, yeah. like I had sort of uh, arrived in a secret society, which was, you know, sort of what it was. Uh-huh. And um, and then they started singing, still in Occitan, and uh doors to the kitchen opened and this parade uh, arrived in the dining room and they were carrying a stretcher uh, covered with red and gold satin. And on it was this humongous clay pot with a bubbly golden concoction in it. And it was like something I'd never tasted. And that was, you know, my my first deep dive, if you will, um, into cassoulet.
0: Oh, my God. What was that first bite like? You must remember it.
2: Well, I do remember it because what happened is I tasted this and it immediately brought me back home. Except, hmm. you know, we, we read, uh, obviously, we all know about Proust and the Madeleine or um, the critic, the food critic in Ratatouille who's transported.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know,
2: it's a cliche, right? But in my case, it did not make any sense because we never ate cassoulet in the childhood home uh, where I grew up. Mm, okay. And so it took me a uh, very, very long time, years, to understand um, why it felt like home.
0: We'll be back with more with Sylvie Bigar, author of Cassoulet Confessions. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking to food writer Sylvie Begar, author of Cassoulet Confessions. And before the break, she was telling us about a dinner event where she experienced that classic French dish. And that changed her life. Let's get back to it with her. So tell me about the rest of the table, the 24 other people, the robes, the... I mean, it sounds very ritualistic. Do, do you know what that story is?
2: Well, I think that the reason why um, the chef, who in my book is named Eric Garcia, um, he co-founded this Universal Academy of Cassoulet. But the reason behind this was more than to, in his words, save this dish. Um, It was because he felt that this dish basically represented the land, represented his region Every ingredient in cassoulet comes from the region. And Mm. there are several tales about, you know, how cassoulet originated. Um, But for him and for the people at the table, what mattered is that, you know, they would be still the authentic three-day cassoulet, even though you can also, and I'm sure you know this, buy cassoulet in a can. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, and and if, you know, or in a jar, and some of them are not that bad, honestly. Um, but they were horrified by sort of the, the marketing that had grown around this dish. And they wanted to counter that and make sure that for people who were looking for authentic taste, you know, we can debate what that means, really, but um, there would be Restaurants and uh, places that would be vetted by this academy, and and that's that's how this whole thing started.
1: Mm.
0: Okay, so of these different origin stories, which is the one that feels most persuasive to you?
2: Well, honestly, I feel that all, all three are persuasive. Um, I like the cassoulet from Toulouse because I love lamb and I love braised lamb, so that's delicious. Um I I only tried the partridge in uh, in the Carcassonne version once but I thought that was delicious that was you know gamey and interesting um yeah. and then in Castel Notary, it's just the pork and uh, a Toulouse sausage and uh, and also duck confit so it it sort of depends you know what you like and since this whole obsession started, people have asked me. So, what do you do if you don't eat pork, right? So, I tried and, and made a cassoulet with veal shank instead of pork. Okay, and, and that was delicious as well.
0: Okay, so well, this is an interesting thing, right? Because we're talking about a dish that has so many components. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, there's debate as to which is the official one, which is or, or which is the original one. I guess not official. Mm-hmm. Um. And since those already vary, but then there's like a line that you kind of can't cross when you're evolving it in your own kitchen, right? So is there a sense of what that line is? Like, what's the acceptable boundary of of innovation? You know, if if you go back to your friends at I the love, table and you said, well, I made it with veal shank, are they going to be like, okay, it's been nice knowing you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> probably so. Probably so. But you know what my personal line is? It's the breadcrumbs because... um, (laughs) You're one of
0: the people horrified by the breadcrumbs?
2: Yes. And actually, (laughs) Julia Child puts breadcrumbs in her cassoulet. But um, I'm so um, intrigued by the whole idea of the crust and why it works sometimes and not others Mm. that I don't want to add the breadcrumbs, which of course are going to create some kind of crust. But, you know, I think that that's an unnecessary... uh, add-on, if you will. So my line is the breadcrumbs.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's fair. I guess we all have to find our our cassoulet line that we won't cross. But so I can only imagine that was a very intense and powerful moment. And it really helps that, you know, the dish sounds like it was just incredibly delicious. Yes. But you've really taken it to heart. And I think you noted that the first bite made you feel like you were at home, but you're confused. Why? why did you become so obsessed with it? I mean, that was 15 years ago. And you wrote a book yes. that came out last year. And and it, it sounds like you've been thinking about it and, and kind of writing this book for the whole time. But why did it strike you so much personally?
2: Well, so I asked myself this question for years, for basically 10 years. I would write about something related to cassoulet, you know, maybe what kind of clay pot is the best uh, to cook cassoulet and um, what kind of beans. I wrote a a profile of the chef. I wrote about his restaurant. I wrote about the academy. And every time uh, I would think, okay, now I can move on and do something else and still i would have these dreams and i would think mm. oh but there's more to this there's more to this but i didn't know what it was and finally um i was able to take a few weeks off and uh, and i went to a retreat and i sort of faced this you know imaginary cassoulet in my head mm. um and i realized this was deeper than just a dish i loved and I realized by writing sort of the actually first sentence of the first chapter, which is that we never ate cassoulet in the dining room of Beauchamp, the name of the house I grew up in on Lake Geneva. And that sort of unraveled the whole um, story of my upbringing um, and my very dysfunctional family. Mm. Um, and uh, sort of I realized that cassoulet was a thread you know, it was sort of the the path that allowed me to face um, a lot of the things I had uh, sort of fled from after I left uh, Geneva and moved to New York.
0: Hmm. So you have a few recipes for cassoulet at the end of the book, yes. and you have a couple of the different regional variations, and then you have your own, and you yes. actually have two of your own. One is a full three-day process, and then one's condensed. As I think you, you you can start it that morning and have it for dinner that night. Yes. Tell us about, if we're ready, if, if like, I've got a long weekend coming up, <laughs> I'm ready to spend three days making cassoulet. Walk us through that.
2: Well, I mean, I would say start with the cassoulet that I call gateway cassoulet. But, um, okay you know, which you can start in the morning and eat in the evening. But if you want to start with the three-day one, um, I mean, basically the first day you cook the beans, you make the stock um, and you cook the beans, you know, and then you roast the meats. Um, And what's really important in my version of cassoulet is that I put in a blender Onion, garlic, and a little bit of water, and I puree this, and then we're going to mm, okay. put this in the cassoulet, and then mm-hmm. you you know you put all of these uh, meats and uh, the beans and the stock in the oven, and you cook it you know for for a while, um, and hopefully you'll see the crust happen, and then uh, you take the Cassoulet out of the oven, and you let it cool, and you put it in the refrigerator, um, mm-hmm. and then the next day you bake it again. And uh, I'm actually looking at the recipe, and my recipe has only two days, not three. It's uh, a <laughs> slacker. Actually,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's Eric Garcia's who 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 takes three days. Um, you know, my cassoulet master, as I like to say. Um but yeah. um I would I would start with the gateway cassoulet because I think I think a lot of people are sort of intimidated by the idea of spending three days making making a dish.
0: So what speeds up the the process to give you a one day
2: well um you don't soak the beans in the gateway Cassoulet uh while um Eric mm-hmm. Garcia soaks them overnight. And you don't make your own um, stock, which which is fine, you know. There's perfectly good stocks out there. And I think that works just fine. And then also you don't put, obviously, the stew in the refrigerator. Um, you just you know, cook it through and then serve it that evening. But a lot of uh, braise and a lot of stews are actually better the next day. I'm sure you agree with me. So that's where the second day, you know, comes in for my recipe.
0: Yeah. But you've talked about the crust. Yes. Have you figured out what, I know, I know you. it's, it's, to you, it seems a little magical, you said. So maybe there's no, uh, well, if you do this, you're going to get the crust. If you do this, you won't. But do you have a sense, like what what gives you that crust?
2: Um, I think it's a mixture of collagen, fat, and the skin of the beans. But mm. if you say that, I mean, it doesn't sound that good, right? And so <laughs> it's I do a little less romantic. Yeah, I know, I know. So I mean, I used to say, well, you know, maybe it depends on the prayer or something like that. <laughs> I want to believe that it's mythical and magical.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, you know, it's interesting. I remember when I was in culinary school, I remember uh, one of the exams I had to take, like one of the actual cooking exams.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I, I had to do like a like three dishes or something like that. And one of them was a soup. And you have to do it to a time. And And so basically I finished making the soup. Uh, I think it was like a cream of mushroom soup or something like that. And I wanted to keep it hot. And so I, you know, I, I plated it and then I kept it in the oven.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, just to keep it warm while I finished the rest of the dishes. And uh, I scored very well on my exam. Thank you very much. Except I got docked points because when I served the soup, there was a skin on the soup. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we've all seen it. Yes. And it was because the soup was cooked. And then you put it in the oven. And as the soup, you know, sat in the warm oven, there's something about the very top of the soup that forms a skin. Yes. And I think I, I think I looked it up once because I was so like... Curious, uh, why a that was bad? You know, like hey, I you know, well, it's bad because it's a different texture. It's not like the smooth, beautiful puree, like everything else. But I wonder why it happened. And it was something like um, it's almost like when you make uh, tofu skin. Yes, uh, yuba, uh, as they call it in Japanese. It's you're all you're sort of doing a purpose, which is like a liquid that has a lot of protein in it. If it's cooked very slowly. Basically, the very top of it dries out a little bit. Like the evaporation happens in the very top. And then the proteins kind of stick together. Right. And then it creates, you know, a skin. Yep. And you could like, you know, if you were my culinary school instructor, you'd be like, no, you have to lift it out because it's an impurity. Or if you're making yuba, you slowly lift it out and you let it dry and it's a beautiful food on its own. So I wonder if it's like that. I wonder if it's like that skin, but formed over a long period of time. So it's very thick and actually gets crisp and crusty. And and then like you said, you break it, right?
2: Exactly. So that's the difference I see between the skin of a soup, which actually can be delicious in itself. Yeah. Um, I I totally agree with you. Um, (laughs) I'm still salty
0: about losing those points, by the way.
2: No, I'm (laughs) sorry. I'm sorry. Um, But you know, it makes me think of what happens when you cook milk, right? When you heat up milk. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, the difference between the skin and the crust is what you just said before, which is the caramelized, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't think the skin of your soup was caramelized. Right, right, it was right, 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 just right. right? It was just dried just the right amount. He just didn't know what he was talking about.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, every French chef would have told you the same. So yes, well, we don't want to get banished from the country. No, um, exactly. But okay, so... How is the Universal Academy of Cassoulet? Is it still going strong?
2: It is going strong, but Eric Garcia has retired, which is Mm. really, really sad. Um, And I think that when he retired, he said he was was done and he wasn't going to cook cassoulet ever again. And I just heard, yeah, because he, I mean, you know, it was his specialty in his restaurant. And so he cooked cassoulet twice or three times a week. And, you know, he lived with his family above the restaurant, and that's what they ate. I mean, a lot of the meals was just leftover cassoulet, including breakfast. Um, I always remember when I came down (laughs) for breakfast. Yes. Cassoulet for breakfast with red wine, and including for the kids.
0: Oh, my goodness. Okay. I mean...
2: Yeah, and that's where, that's where you realize that this is really in the fabric of the land. You know, this is not just a good dish for a fine dining restaurant, far from that.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you've studied so much, you know, these very traditional cassoulets and people who are, you know, devoted to preserving it in this sort of original, maybe not original, but in this, in this particular way. Have you had ones that felt subversive to you have you had one that felt like wow this is like a cool new step for this or are you just would you just reject that idea
2: no i'm i'm very interested in in different um interpretations of the dish. And and I don't, you know, I don't feel that I'm somebody who can decide what's real and what's not. What matters to me is whether sure. it's good. Does it taste good? And that's also what I want to say to people who want to try this at home. Don't be intimidated. Just make your cassoulet. And if you have another piece of meat that's lying around, put it in and see what happens. Maybe it'll be good. Maybe it won't. Um, But I don't want to be doctrinaire. It's boring.
0: (laughs) And you know the people who are if you need to talk to them.
2: Yes, I do. Thank you
0: so much, Sylvie.
2: Thank you, Francis. This was so much fun.
0: Sylvie Bigar is the author of Cassoulet Confessions, Food, France, Family, and the Stew That Saved My Soul. And she left us with a recipe for Gateway Cassoulet at SplendidTable.org. And that's our show for the week. Thank you, as always, for listening, and go make something delicious, whether it takes you 10 minutes or three days. We'll talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Tandra Cavati, Joanne Griffith, and Alec Schaffert. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto casper It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lupke, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your downloads, and leave us a review. We really want to hear what you
1: think. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios.